the prophet Jonah has to be considered one of the most pathetic characters in Scripture. And I wish that I was more like him. Why didn't Jonah go to Nineveh, that great city in the empire of Assyria, with the message of God's judgment? I I should say, why didn't he want to go? He he ended up going, but initially, and, and really right through to the end, and this is why he's such a pathetic character, he didn't want to go. He didn't want to be there, and he didn't want to give God's message to the Ninevite people. Why? Some have speculated that perhaps Jonah was afraid. The Assyrian Empire was notorious for its evil. It was known for the gruesome deaths to which it would subject the victims of its warfare. But it's not that they would do something horrible to him. He didn't want to go because he was afraid of what God would do to the Ninevites. Do to them. Do really for them. That's why he didn't want to go. He ran the other way because he knew without a doubt what God would be for that city. Who God would be for that city. And Jonah would rather die than the Ninevites live. That's why he didn't want to go. We're going to turn our attention to Jonah chapter 3, verse 4, and we're going to to read down through chapter 4, verse 3. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey. And he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles. Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Now get this. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way. God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. And he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Do you see why Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh? It's not that they would do something horrible to him. 
He was afraid of what God would do to them in the sense that God would grant them life, that hearing the message of judgment, they would repent of their sins. And Jonah knew with utmost confidence who God would prove to be to them if they would repent. He knew without any doubt whatsoever that God is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. And that's why he didn't want to go to Nineveh, because he knew that they would live if they repented of their sin. How did Jonah know this? How did he have this confidence? We've been talking about it, I think this is our eighth week now. He knew the glory revelation from God to Moses that had been given about 700 years earlier. Moses, in the middle of a threat of disaster upon the people of Israel, had called out to God, please show me your glory. And God responded to him, I will cause all of my goodness to pass before you, and I will proclaim to you my name, the Lord. On the following day, Moses was led up into the heights of Sinai. He was hidden there in the cleft of the rock, covered by the hand of God, and the Lord passed before him and allowed him to see the back part of God, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, who will by no means clear the guilty. That glory revelation formed the faith of the people of Israel from that time forward. We have seen it recalled and quoted verbatim now in a number of passages. We see it again in the book of Jonah. This is how Jonah knew who God would be to the people of Nineveh if they too repented of their sin. He knew that God would relent of the disaster that was looming over that city because he is a God who is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, who relents of disaster. In fact, I think based on that, those exact words in the book of Jonah chapter 4 verse 2, I think that Jonah was a contemporary of the prophet Joel. We don't know that for certain because we don't know exactly when Joel lived, but they quote Moses just the same and end with those words that God is a God who relents of disaster. They say the exact same thing. And I wish that we were more like Jonah. I wish that we had that kind of confidence that this is who our God is. That it would actually control our lives like it controlled Jonah's life. He knew who God was so well. This was a bedrock confidence in his life that it controlled the direction of his life. He determined where he would go and what he would do and, and all of that based on this knowledge of God. And I wish that we would have that kind of confidence in who God is, that God will never be anything less to me at any time 
than what he declared to Moses 3,500 years ago now and continues to declare ultimately through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. I wish we had that confidence that it would determine our steps and it would determine what ships we board and the direction that we sail. I wish we had this kind of confidence that no matter what we are passing through, that we would know I'm going through something right now. And there's some uncertainty in my life. And I'm not just applying this to you. I'm telling you actually personally something. But I know who God will be. I know who he will prove to be to me no matter what. No matter what conditions are true in my life, I know the character that God will prove. I wish we had Jonah's confidence because he says, I knew you would do this. I knew it. And that's why I didn't want to come here because I knew this is the kind of God that you are. And isn't it pathetic how he throws it in God's face? We have seen it in the, in the Psalms. Just to recap for a moment, I've been wanting to show you over the last few weeks the effect of the glory revelation in our lives. And so we talked first of all about how we, now my memory is failing me, um, what was the first week? We, something, your glory. And it starts with a P, they've all started with P. Well, the second week was that in the light of the glory of God, we're pleading people, we're praying people. And then we looked at how in light of the glory of God, we're a persevering people and, and penitent. And it started off with four things, but it has stretched into five now. And so now we're at, we will proclaim your glory, Lord. And I just can't remember the first one off the top. We will praise. We will praise your glory, Lord. That's what it was. And we saw it from Psalm 103 specifically, how the psalmists were compelled to praise God based on that glory revelation, the character of God that he had revealed to them. It turned them to singing and to praying and repenting and all of that. Now Jonah, knowing who God is like they did, is not compelled to praise, is not spurred on to perseverance. He doesn't raise the glory revelation to God back to him in a song he throws it in God's face. It doesn't compel joy. It doesn't awaken joy in him. It actually makes him depressed. So I want to be like Jonah and to have that kind of confidence that it determines the direction of my life because I know who God is going to be. But I don't want us to be like him. I don't want us to come to the point where we would rather die than share the gospel. In many countries, it is illegal to share the gospel. And in those countries where it's illegal, there are many faithful Christians who would rather die than not share the gospel. If you were dead tomorrow, would anything change from your life now to how you're sharing the gospel? I want my life, my outlook, my hopes and ambitions to be ruled by the bedrock, bedrock confidence that this is who God is and what he will prove. 
so that I can say at the end of every single day, I knew you would do this. Just like Jonah did, but obviously twisted so it's right. I knew you would do this. I knew this is the kind of God that you are. I want that confidence. But I want I want the glory revelation of God and its its intersection with our lives to become our proclamation to the world around us. I want the glory revelation of God and its intersection in our lives that comes ultimately through the gospel of Jesus Christ to become our proclamation to the world so that we say there is but one God to the world and he is God over all. And let me tell you what our God is like. He is gracious and merciful. He is slow to anger and he abounds in steadfast love. And he relents of disaster. Let us tell them what he is like and how he displays that ultimately through his son and the cross of his son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Let us tell them that God forgives iniquity and transgression and sin, but he will by no means clear the guilty. Let us tell them. Let us tell the world that he has never turned away any sinner who comes to him in repentance. Never. And what kind of repentance? Not the cheap, save my skin kind of repentance. That, that quick, cheap, shallow pledge of change. Save my skin, Lord. But the kind of repentance that is a confession of sin and a heart cry to God to save our souls. The kind of repentance that the Apostle Paul described the Thessalonians experience where they turned from idols to God to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. That kind of repentance. God will never turn away any sinner who comes to him with that kind of repentance. Let us tell the world. Let us not be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the effect of the glory revelation that God gave to Moses 3,500 years ago and fulfills ultimately in his son. It becomes our proclamation to the nations. When is the last time that you told a sinner? Let's now move to Psalm 145. It begins, I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. This is the psalmist's determination for his life. I will extol you. And it's his destiny. He says, I will bless your name forever and ever. Is it yours? Is it your determination? And do you know that this is your destiny? Your future? that you will be in glory, blessing the name of God forever and ever. We, we have so much to look forward to, and we have, I was going to say no idea, but that's just uh, euphemism or whatever you call it. We have an idea, but we cannot comprehend how great and glorious our future with God is going to be. 
all that time beholding him and all that time praising him. In fact, the further we behold him, the more we will praise him. The further we behold him, the more we will praise. And there will be forever, and there will be an ever-widening, lengthening, deepening, heightening vision of who our God is. Because you can't get to the end of him. He is infinite. As David says in verse 3, he is unsearchable, which does not mean you can't see him. It means that there is always more of him to see. And so as our beholding is furthered through all of eternity, on and on and on, so will our praise go on and on and on, growing greater and greater all the time. That is our destiny. My friend Seth Yee, who is pastor of Calhoun Presbyterian, and I started our after-school Bible club at Central Elementary this past week, and he was teaching the kids about heaven and what we will be doing there. And he said, you know, so many people talk about what they're going to do and what they're going to see and where they're going to go and who they're going to do all of that with. And then he said, but you know what? I think for the first one billion years, we won't be able to take our eyes off Jesus. And I said in my heart, amen, brother. Amen. We will behold our God. And that was just his way of saying we won't stop fixing our gaze upon Christ. That's our destiny. That's what we're headed for. It's not only our destiny, this is our day-to-day life. Verse 2, every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Church family, let us get up in the morning, Monday morning of all mornings. Of course, it's my day off, so it might be a little bit easier for me than for you. But if you're headed back to the grind tomorrow morning, let us yet rise Monday morning and realize that this is a Monday under God. Let us rise blessing his name. How can anything inspire praises for so long and inspire praises so high as what we're talking about here? Whenever your five senses grasp something that stands out for excellence or beauty or being unique and just special, we end up saying something. It is just natural for us to speak. When you go into the mountains, and especially for us who live here, where things are a little more plain, (laughs) you can't help but say something. You just speak. When you, and if someone that you're with doesn't say anything, if they're just like, yeah, whatever, you know, passing glance, they barely notice. I mean, check their pulse. Go ahead and actually check their humanity. Because it is just natural when you behold something wondrous to speak. You see a wonder, you speak of its wonders. That's just natural. And so we do this all the time whenever we grasp something with our senses that is wonderful, that is unique. We praise new technologies. We praise beautiful fall days. We praise Brenda's sweet potatoes when it comes to family fellowship. This is what we do. Now, if those things become common in our lives, our praises become restrained and muted. So by the time you leave the mountains, you're not gushing the same kind of wonder as when you first entered the mountains. 
those things have become becoming they've become a little more common and it our praise it might still be there in a sense and we might look back you know through the, the back window with a little bit of longing as we leave but it's not the same as when you first behold the thing when something that is wonderful becomes commonplace if eddie ate brenda's sweet potatoes every single meal breakfast dinner or lunch whatever you want to call it and supper too he probably wouldn't be going for a helping of them when it comes to family fellowship like the rest of us are when something becomes commonplace praises become muted our god is not common he is holy and utterly other he is the holy god so that the old testament scriptures say of him regularly there is none like you o lord or take the word from the lord himself beside me there is no other he is other he is completely and utterly unique holy great is the lord and greatly to be praised so going back to the question how can anything inspire praises so high and for so long so that we bless it ascribe glory and honor to it forever and ever because god is completely other there is nothing like him and for eternity we will behold him and explore him and we will praise him on and on and on with growing praise great is the lord and greatly to be praised his greatness again is unsearchable which again means it's not that we won't be able to see it but we'll never get to the bottom of it there will always be more to see church family consider verse 4 one generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts we have seen great things and we must say so let the redeemed of the lord say so we have seen great things and we must speak those great things do you remember the effects on moses when he saw the glory revelation of god first he bowed down to the earth And then when he would regularly meet with God and speak with him face to face as a friend speaks with his friend the evidence was written all over his face literally the glory light of God reflected off of him so that he had to put a veil over his face so that the regular israelites could feel like he was actually approachable showed up on his face not only in his face though but in his words in the power and the weight of the words which he wrote down or consider what the glory of god did to the lord's apostles peter and john when they stood before the council the religious leaders of jerusalem and were accosted for continuing to teach in the name of jesus and to accuse people and the leaders for him being crucified and testifying that he had risen from the dead and is indeed lord 
They said, teach no more in this name. But they realized in the boldness of Peter and John that these men had been with Jesus in their power. They realized that though these men were uneducated, unschooled men, they had been with Jesus. The effect was in their speech. And when Peter and John responded, they said, we must obey God rather than men. And listen to what they said. They said, we cannot but speak what we have seen and heard. That was the effect on them. They saw and heard, and then they declared it. They saw it, and then they spoke it. We have seen great things, and we must say so. That's what Psalm 45 is speaking of. Great is the Lord, greatly to be praised. His greatness is unsearchable. We must say so. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. Whenever I've read this verse, and it's been quite a few times in the last couple of years, I've, I've thought of Alt's Chapel and, and T-shirts. If, if we would ever design a T-shirt for Alt's Chapel with like a, a verse on it, we'd probably need a few different designs, a few different verses, but this would definitely be right there. Because I can't help but think of all's chapel when I think of this verse. This church which has commended the works of God from one generation to another since back in 1901. This church, this multi-generational church where we go in age from 19 months to 95. Commending one generation commending the works of God to the other. The older to the younger, and the younger to the older. We do this in sermons. We do this in lessons. We do this in song. We do this in the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper. We declare the mighty acts of God in all of these things. We need to do it as well, better in our conversation. Do you know God well enough to converse about him? I need for you to commend the works of God to me. And maybe someone might say, aren't you the pastor? Isn't that your job? You're to commend the works of God to us, declare the mighty acts of God to us. But am I not a member of the body of Christ? Am I perfected? Have I arrived? I need the ministry of the word of the Lord just as much as you do. So let us know God well enough to converse about him. And let us not speak in the trite cliches of the bumper sticker world. Let us be able to converse about God with substance. Give me something to chew on. I'll try to give you something to chew on. You give me something to chew on. You know, with the, the teeth of your heart. Which if you're thinking literally, it's kind of a... <laughs> but I want something to chew on, to meditate on. And that's the effect. Look at verse 5. The effects of our declarations of the mighty acts of God become our meditation on the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous 
works, I shall meditate. Now David, who's writing this psalm, again speaks of the people. He says, they shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds, and I will declare your greatness. They speak God's word to me. I meditate upon it. They keep on speaking it, and I also join them, and I declare the greatness of God. First we meditate upon him, and then we declare him. First we speak, see him, rather. First we see him, and then we speak of him. And this is what we do on Sundays when we gather together in the assembly of the children of God. I have meditated upon the greatness of God throughout the week. I stand before you and I declare that greatness to you so that you, feeding on the word of God, can meditate upon it yourself and then turn, go from here, and declare it far and wide. That's what we do. Look at verse 7. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. If it ever became illegal in this country to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with the unbelieving and unconverted, would anything change in your life from what it is right now? if it became illegal to share the gospel, would you go on? How, how soon would it be until you were first guilty? How long would it be until your first act of disobedience against that legislation? Again, I want to remind you, and it's to our shame, that the nations where it is illegal, and there are many, there are multitudes of faithful Christians who would rather die than not share the gospel. And we in the American church are far too like the prophet Jonah who would rather die than share the gospel. It's to our shame. But I want to just touch on that because I don't think it's very effective and helpful to try to guilt people into sharing the gospel. I think you'll just feel guilty. And I felt plenty of regret and guilt for not sharing the gospel as often as I should and as I've had opportunity. And I've had preachers that I felt have guilted me into this mission and really tried to use guilt as a um, as the spur, but it's not the way that the gospel of grace works. So what what I wanted I want to show you why we don't share the gospel. I don't think that the ultimate reason is fear, although it's one legitimate reason, and we talk about it all the time: the fear of man. Now it keeps us quiet. Shuts our mouths. I think we stop speaking because we stop seeing. We stop speaking the gospel to the unbelieving world because we stop seeking the face of God. Because what happens when you see the glory of God 
is, is just like what happens when you see a wonder in the world. You say something. It's just natural, and you're hardly human. Maybe you disqualify if you see something awesome that you've never seen before or that is so you know, not common in your life, and you don't say something. And it's the same way with God. When we behold our God in truth with those spiritual eyes, that true spiritual perception, God's people speak. That's what happened with Peter and John, where they said, we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. That's the effect. So I don't think it's, I don't think it's that we haven't seen and haven't heard, although that may be the case with some who gather in the church, that they truly haven't seen and haven't heard. I think it's that we stop seeing and we stop hearing. And our hearts are so quick to unbelief and so quick to spiritual dullness that if we don't keep up the fight of faith to see God, we will stop speaking his name. We will stop speaking the gospel to those who need to hear. So I guarantee you, if you go Monday through Saturday without meditation on the word of God and only pick it up on Sunday, you will not be commending the mighty works of God and declaring his mighty acts and so on as the psalm describes throughout the week. You won't be. You will not be pouring forth the fame of his name. So just my challenge to you, this is not to guilt you into sharing the gospel. Behold your God. Are you tasting and seeing enough goodness to gush his name? Do you think that it could be said of us? That church there pours forth the fame of his abundant goodness. Not that anyone speaks just like that. But do you think it could be said of us? I would say not. What do we have to see? And what do we have to say? Look at verse 8. Let us say, let us see and let us say, the Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The world needs to know, just as we pledge in our church covenant to one another, that we will, by the faithful witness of our words and the pure witness of our lives, we will witness, we will speak the truth and love to those who need to hear. The world needs to hear by our words and through our life what God is like. So we must see for ourselves constantly, continuously, the glory revelation of God declared to Moses fulfilled in Jesus. We must behold our God or we will not be faithful to the mission that God has given to each one of us, to us as a corporate body and to us as individuals. But when we see when we see, we will, just, we will be just like Peter and John. And it will be true in our lives that we cannot but speak what we have seen and heard. In verse 9, it says, it continues, The Lord is good to all, and His mercy is over all that He has made. There's so many ways that we could uh, treat, uh, use this verse, so many ways I could handle it. 
I just actually want to handle it uh, in a practical way. How can we share the faith with people? You know, one of the most common exchanges that we have with people is about the weather, right? And maybe it's, it has a lot to do with we don't have anything else to talk about. <laughs> so, we, you know, if you're talking to somebody you don't know any very well, you say, hey, how about this weather? <laughs> we, we need to find common ground, right? To be able to converse with each other. We need this common ground. But you know what? I think that it's not just because we don't have anything else to say that we talk about the weather. I think perhaps God has wired us this way to talk about the weather. We need common ground. And what is more common than the weather we all experience? Common grace, the theologians call it. That God shines his sun and he pours his rain on all alike. Just and unjust, believer and unbeliever. There's common ground. When we talk about the weather, why should we leave off God? It's a beautiful day. God is good, isn't he? We're finally getting that rain that we need. God is good. God is faithful. You see, I think that there's actually empirical evidence that God is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. We talk about how Moses saw something back in Sinai and left him bowed to the earth. He didn't just hear, he saw something, the trailing edge of the glory of God. And we talk about needing spiritual perception to see that. But I do think that there is empirical evidence that God is this, as he describes over and over again, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. The world goes on, doesn't it? God is gracious and merciful. That it goes on, that he hasn't consumed it already. The world goes on beautifully, doesn't it? He is slow to anger. And he abounds in steadfast love. You see, as it says in verse 9, he is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. Help people see that. You want an entrance into the gospel? You want to bring up Jesus? But you need to start somewhere? Instead of doing, you know, Jesus cold turkey, so to speak? Speak of God's common grace. And then let that leads you to his special grace in Christ. His mercy is over all that he has made. It's a beautiful day. God is good. Tell them. I mean, that's, that's the evidence all around us that there is a God. We see in his creation that there is a, crea a creator. We know his eternal nature, his Godhead, his wisdom and his power and his love. That's visible. It's, a, it's visible. So raise it to the world. Help them to recognize it and let it lead you to Jesus. The Lord is good to all and his mercy is over all that he has made. I think that believers should revel in the beauty of the earth. I think we should be the kind of people who step outside of our doors in the morning and just breathe in that crisp air of this season, which now that I've moved to Louisiana is my favorite season of all. It used to be summer. 
Not anymore. You breathe that in, and God is good. And I, I think maybe we don't talk enough about the earth because we're maybe we're afraid of sounding like earth worshipers, like, which I guess could be a danger to some, but to the children, to the child of God, I mean, as a child of God, I hardly, I don't feel that danger whatsoever. It's kind of like how I talk about my wife's good meal that she has cooked for me. I go on and on about this steak. Really, I do. It, for some people would think it's weird, but, you know, for, I take one bite after another, it's just like, mmm, this is good. I do that. But my wife likes that. She's glad for that. Because while I'm talking about the steak, I'm not praising the cow. My praise is for the one who cooked it up. And she knows it. So when we talk about the beauty of the earth, the children of God, we're praising him the grace that he has given to us. And our, our praise needs to just, it needs to go out. The beauty of the day and the goodness of our God. All your works, it says in verse 10, all your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and all your saints shall bless you. Um, quickly, does the beauty of the earth actually move you? Maybe it hasn't done this to you, but can you could you picture it doing it to you that the beauty of the day actually draws tears of joy? If you can't picture that, I would say you don't think highly enough of your God. His goodness is everywhere present. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and all your saints shall bless you for them. Verses 11 and 12. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power to make known to the children of man your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. How often do we think on our achievements and crave for others to notice them? Would that we pour over his achievements and admire them. Would that we get to the place in our growth and our conformity to Christ that we long for others to notice him. If today ends up being your last, will you have used your mouth more for self-promotion or to boast in your God? He gave us this mouth and he gave us words to speak. He gave us a vision to see and words to speak that we might boast in his holy name. That's what we are made for. Let us not waste our lives. Let us not waste our days. Let us proclaim his word. Now, based on time, I should just wrap this up, but I just want you to see Psalm 40, please. A few verses. And now, as we read through some verses of this, I'll have to keep my comments to a minimum, but please be thinking about Jesus. Be thinking about what God has done for you through the gospel of his son. David says, I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock 
making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Isn't this what God has done for us through the gospel of His Son? We were in the pit of destruction, the miry bog, the grave. We cried out and God heard. He inclined Himself to us. He heard our cry and He brought us out. And He put us upon the rock of His Son to make our way, our days, our life, our destiny and glory secure. And now we are no longer crying out the words of the lost. We are singing from that rock on which we stand the songs of the saved. And this is David's confidence as he sings. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. I want to say so much more. Read verse, let's read verse 5. You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. That's exactly what he was writing in Psalm 145 when he said, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised and his greatness is unsearchable. He says the same thing at the end of verse 5 here. He says, I'm going to proclaim your mighty works. I'm going to tell of them. They are more than can be told. It's more than my tongue can recite. Skip down to verses 9 and 10. I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips. As you know, O Lord, I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. Can we say, as David claimed, we've received your deliverance, Lord. And we have not hidden your deliverances, your deliverance within our hearts. We have not concealed it. We have proclaimed your name. And we will go on proclaiming your name. Even as we know that our words cannot do what you have done for us, justice. Our words can't do you justice. You are more than we can say. What you have done is more than we can say. But we're going to say as much as we can. That's why we're here and that is our mission. Has he saved you? Tell the world. Don't you believe that he is powerful to save? Don't you believe that the goodness and the name of God will wake up other sleepers and raise the dead? Don't you trust that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the power of God for salvation? Don't you believe it like Jonah believed it? Let's believe like Jonah believed. And let us obey like Peter and John. So that we say, no matter what they say against us, no matter what they legislate against us, we say we cannot but speak what we have seen and heard. 